Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1. And these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, they'll get you one of those. If you'll get their attention, it's marked for you at Habakkuk 1. Even if you have a Bible and you can't find Habakkuk, maybe ask those guys for one that's marked for you at uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. And please keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. And we want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, bring it back with you each week. And for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at this small book of Habakkuk. It's an evidence of God's mercy that we are surprised by suffering. When you think about it, given that we live in a fallen world, that fallen world is a consequence of sin, given that, then hard times and pain and difficult problems should and would be the norm rather than the exception if it were not for the goodness of God to us. The fact that these things are exceptional and surprising is testimony to God's mercy. The fact that we're surprised by suffering is not only an indication of God's mercy, but also of our foolishness. You've heard me say in the past that foolishness is not the same as ignorance. To be ignorant just means I don't know something. But foolishness in the Bible is worse than ignorance because it's not that we do not know, but we fail to act on what we do know. Given what the Bible says about trials and about pain and about difficulty, then should we be surprised... That it happens to us. Given the headlines in the morning paper, can we really plead ignorance to the indications of fallenness that are all around us? We know from Scripture and from experience that anyone can be brought low by pain and suffering with a pink slip, with a foreclosure notice, a problem found after a medical examination, and so on. Not only can individuals be brought low, but once great institutions can as well. I never dreamed that I would see in my lifetime, and I'm guessing that it's true for most of you as well, that I would see in my lifetime what had been for many decades the largest corporation in America declare bankruptcy. But General Motors, headquartered in our own backyard of Detroit, did that very thing under 10 years ago. And even the financial solvency of our nation hung in the balance for a while at that time. I'm thankful that we were brought through those storms and that things are better now, for now. But if it happened once, then what's to suggest it can't happen again? And given what the Bible and the headlines say, suffering friends should be no surprise to us. Now, the form of trouble may surprise us by blindsiding us, but the fact of suffering most most certainly should not. Since the onset of trouble should not take us by surprise, then we should not find ourselves unprepared for it. But unfortunately, most of us attempt to sort out our view of the circumstances only when we're in the midst of them, and then it's often too late. The best way to deal with the trial is to prepare for it. You know it's going to come in one form or another, so be ready when it does. That's why that I've chosen to do a short series in this small book of Habakkuk. I want to prepare us. I want us to be prepared from God's word for what is always an uncertain future, 
both in our personal lives, but also for our church, for our economy and for our country. Thankfully, God has given us instruction in his word that will indeed help prepare us for whatever comes our way so that we can have courage in every crisis. So we're going to look at over the next eight weeks together in this book of Habakkuk. Let's ask God to help us as we begin that series. Father, we thank you for bringing us here safely with the inclement weather. We thank you for those who made it possible for us to enter the building and the parking lot, for those who plowed our streets. We thank you, Lord, that all of this is your providence, you using secondary means in order to accomplish your purpose. And your purpose is that we be here. And now in your presence, with your book opened, in order to learn about you and from you. So we ask you, Lord, to help us to do that very thing. Lord, all of us have cares with which we came into this building. Cares of the world, cares in our families, cares in our personal lives. Help us to be able to not be distracted by those, to be able to focus our attention and open us, open our hearts on what you have to say. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week for our message, we insert in the program that you should have received on the way in an outline. And I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it out already. And I say, first of all, God tells us what we need to know. This book is named Habakkuk because verse 1 tells us it contains, you see in verse 1, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now, we don't know much about Habakkuk personally other than he was probably an official temple musician and prophet. We see an example of that, examples of musicians who were prophets in the time of King David. The Bible tells us this, David set apart some for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. They prophesied using musical instruments in thanking and praising the Lord. And then the end of Chapter 3 of this small book of Habakkuk records singing and praising God. And Habakkuk says he's going to accompany that singing, notice, on my stringed instruments. So apparently he was one of these prophet musicians in the temple of, of God. We're not given a specific date as to when he lived, but we're given a clue in verse 6 that approximates when he lived and ministered. Where the Lord says, verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians. Now, you may remember, if you've taken our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class, that Babylon invaded Jerusalem 586 B.C., 586 years before Christ, in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And it's reasonable to assume that Habakkuk was about a generation before that time. That is, Babylon had not yet come to power, but its rise was on the horizon. Author Colin Smith describes the background of Habakkuk. Somewhere around 600 years before the birth of Christ, it must have been a great relief for many people when King Josiah came to the throne because prior to that, they had suffered for over 50 years under the rule of an awful king named Manasseh, the worst of all the kings. He promoted the worship of other gods. He burned his own children in the fire. And there's a tradition that he was the one who had the prophet Isaiah executed by sawing him in two. That was the kind of man Manasseh was, and he reigned for 54 years. 
During his reign, there was so little place for God's truth that the Bible that they had of that time, the books of the the law, the first five books of our Bible, they had been lost in the temple. Even religious leaders didn't know where the word of God was. It had so little place in the life of the nation, it was completely forgotten. But then after a half century of that, a new king, Josiah, came to the throne. Shortly after that, when they were cleaning out some vaults in the temple, the book of the law was discovered. The law of God was brought out and the king asked for it to be read. And when they read the law of God, he tore his clothes. That was kind of an ancient expression of repentance and regret. He was saying, in effect, we're not doing this. No wonder things are like they are in our nation. We've gone so far from obeying the law that God has given. We've not even known what the law of God was. We've forgotten it completely. So Josiah, from that point, launched a personal campaign of moral reform in the nation. Since he was the king, he could do pretty well whatever he wanted. And he went on a kind of reformation tour. And he personally supervised the destruction of all the pagan places of worship. He reinstated the Feast of Passover. And he called on the people to pledge renewed allegiance to the living God. The book of Jeremiah tells us much about what happened during this period. And Jeremiah lived and ministered during the same time as Habakkuk. We know that because Jeremiah says this, The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king. So he did his prophesying, he did his ministry during the same time period. But despite the ministry of Jeremiah and all the good things that happened under Josiah, this is what the Lord said to Jeremiah, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. So God was saying to him, Jeremiah, you've seen this great campaign for moral reformation led by the king. And there have indeed been a good number of changes. There are no longer these pagan shrines and Passover is being observed. But here's the problem. There's been some outward reformation of morals, some behavioral change, and that's a good thing. But it has not touched the hearts of the people. Habakkuk lived through one of the greatest attempts in all history to restore what we would call Christian values to the land. For all the good things that Josiah did, and there were many, the hearts of the people were not changed. When Josiah died, his son Jehoiakim came to the throne. And his leadership went in exactly the opposite direction. Now, because the hearts had not changed from the time of Manasseh, now you have this king coming. He's similar to Manasseh, and you have people ready and willing to follow him. You can read about that on your own in Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah 36 tells us that the word of God had been written on a scroll by the prophet Jeremiah, and it was read to the king, Jehoiakim, while he was sitting in his winter room in the palace with a big fireplace in the corner. And he tells us that he had a secretary read the Bible to him. Read me the scroll. Read me the word of God. What does God have to say? And the secretary read a couple of columns from the scroll, and the king responded by getting out his scissors, as it were, and he cut that section from the scroll, and he threw it in the fire. And then he said, read me some more of what God says. And the secretary read some more and the king did the same thing. Takes out his scissors, cuts it out, throws it into the fire. He did that until all of it 
was burnt. Now, what a contrast. Josiah had come to the throne. He heard the word of God and he tore his clothes. His son comes to the throne just a few years later, hears the word of God, burns it in the fire. Soon, under the leadership of Jehoiakim, his wickedness began to filter down through the people of the nation, particularly among those who were only superficially influenced by the revival of Josiah's day. One preacher said this was a time period of great moral crisis in the nation of Judah. But it was more than that. It was not only a time of moral crisis in the nation, it was also a time of political crisis internationally. The empires were in flux. Egypt to the south, Assyria, who had bludgeoned the northern kingdom of Israel out of existence, was still on the march. And to the northeast, Babylon was on the rise. And it's into this moral crisis and political upheaval that Habakkuk cries out to God for intervention. Now, how familiar are the themes of that historical setting for us? Here at home, one writer has eloquently described the scene when he said, while the stage is set for global holocaust, an unsuspecting home audience fiddles a happy tune. The nation's moral fiber is being eaten away by a playboy philosophy that makes personal pleasure the supreme rule of life. Hedonism, which is a philosophy that promotes me first and only what I want to do, catches fire while homes crumble. Crime soars while church sours. Drugs, divorce, and debauchery prevail. Decency dies. Frivolity dances in the streets. Faith is buried. And God we trust has become a meaningless slogan stamped on corroding coins. God makes known. God reveals what we need to know. And that's what he's doing through the prophet Habakkuk. That's what he's done throughout his history with his people. He's done so in various ways in history of dealing with his people, like through the prophets having dreams, the prophets having visions, or directly addressing the prophets And these prophets are God's authorized spokespersons. They had a a job description. The prophets were preachers who communicated God's word in order to transform their audience's thinking and social behavior. They were persuading people to look at life in a radically different way. The one through whom God tells his people what they need to know in this instance, in this book, is Habakkuk the prophet. Verse 1 says... The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. The Hebrew word translated received is literally saw. This tells us how it is that Habakkuk received his message. He saw it, a vision. This is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of revelation that's given in that way. In your New Testament, the Bible tells us this, that in the past God spoke to our fathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the past, he did that. Now we live at this time, and God speaks to us from the writings of those prophets that you have in your lap. In fact, that very same passage in Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God's special revelation culminated with Christ. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But it goes on to say, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is greater than all of the prophets who had come before. Because the prophets spoke about God. Jesus is the God about whom they spoke. So God still speaks in his word, and he has told you and me what we need to know in Scripture. He's told us, like those before us, what we need to know, not necessarily all that we would like to know. I say in your outline, he tells us these kinds of things. What he tells us is sometimes difficult. Because verse 1 says, it's the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. That word prophecy, some translations call it the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Whether translated prophecy or oracle, the word means this, burden. Something that is heavy. Habakkuk's message was a burden to him as it often was to other prophets, because they had to speak into the sinfulness of the people, and that often included the impending judgment of God. Habakkuk and Jeremiah and others were personally burdened because they could look around and see what was wrong. They know wrong because they first know right, as we do. Life in a fallen world, hear this, still has enough of Eden in it for us to know that Sodom is not the way it's supposed to be. Those with eyes to see, and the prophets certainly were among them, observed the disconnect between the ideal and the reality. So in the words of that great theologian, Jackson Brown, Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand... I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me if you can. Doctor my eyes. Tell me what is wrong. Was I unwise to leave them open for so long? Habakkuk is relaying his observation and his burden, not to some doctor, but to the great physician who alone can heal what ails all of us. Another implication of this word prophecy or oracle or burden is that it requires the prophet and by extension any preacher to faithfully proclaim the word of God. Because think about it, it's not always going to be popular, right? If that's the kind of thing you're having to speak into, if that's the kind of thing you're having to say, if that's the content of the message, it's not always going to be received well. You may be sitting here right now going, really? You want to talk all that sin and judgment stuff? Think about how Jeremiah and how Habakkuk and the other prophets were received. And that was very often the refrain of their message. Whether it be the biblical prophets who revealed the word of God or church age preachers who explain the word of God, handling this word can never be viewed as a light task. It's a heavy task. It's one that weighs upon those who do it must never be approached with a frivolous attitude. It's a burden to be discharged faithfully. So the message of the prophet and now the preacher cannot always be happy talk. In a fallen world, it is sometimes even often straight talk, hard talk. 
And such was the nature of the message of Habakkuk. He's writing at a difficult time and he has to tell them, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, that things will actually get worse before they get better. What God tells us is sometimes difficult, but in your outline I say, what he tells us is also sometimes awesome. At the end of this short book, Habakkuk is given a glimpse of the glory of the sovereign of the universe. That's what we need most, friends, a glimpse of the glory of God. One said it this way, through Habakkuk's eyes, as we study this book together, we're going to see the panorama of history planned by a sovereign God, and we'll see the glory of the king of the universe and learn that it's only in the light of his glory that we can find courage for every crisis. God tells us what we need to know. And I say in your outline, God listens to what we have to say. Habakkuk is unique among all the prophets. All the other prophets begin with the understanding of the fact that they stand as messengers from God. They receive the word of God and they proclaim it to the people. But Habakkuk uniquely begins as a spokesman for the people in all of their confusion and he directs his questions toward God. So rather than, as all the other prophets, he receives this message, tells it to the people, he's taking the way the people are thinking and feeling, and he is thinking and feeling, and he takes that to God. And so this teaches us, I say, that God listens to our complaints. Verse 2 of chapter 1. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Now think about those words of a mere human being to Almighty God. Why are you doing this? Why don't you do something about it? It can be very presumptuous, can it not? It can be arrogant, it can be very dangerous. You see, this kind of protests and lament can be either believing or unbelieving, faithful or unfaithful. Railing against God can be unfaithful, particularly when the protest is accompanied by life-denying, death-promoting kinds of behaviors. Some protest against God by the way they live through self-destructive and abusive behaviors towards others, even those who love them. That unfaithful path of protest usually begins with a significant but subtle distinction. Now hear this. The faithful protest begins with an attitude that continues to address God. God, how could you allow? The unfaithful begins with the impersonal and judging abstraction. How could God allow? Habakkuk's questioning is similar to the faithful protest found in the book of Job. Job's faithfulness is found in his insistence That theological discussion with the so-called friends does not satisfy him. He wants to converse directly with God. And God accepts Job's protest as faithful, and he rejected Job's friends' defense of God. Habakkuk's protest is faithful because it is believing protest. It's done out of the conviction that God is good all of the time, even in death and dying. Did you hear that? It's believing protest. Lord, I believe you are good. I know you are good. 
And the reason I'm asking this is because what I know about you doesn't fit what I see. This conviction doesn't silence the question, silence the questions and the pain of Christians throughout Scripture. Instead, it focuses the questions in the form of personal dialogue with a loving creator and redeemer who accompanies us and will, in perfect time, bring victory, healing, and restoration. Those of us who long for the kingdom of God with its peace and love and goodness can find hope on the pathway of the lament and faithful protest that we read in prophets like Habakkuk. Habakkuk has solid grounds for protesting conditions because God has actually promised in his law to hear the cries of the oppressed. Here's what Exodus chapter 22 says. Do not take advantage of the widow or fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be arised and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. But in verse 2, a specific crisis is in view. Habakkuk speaks of violence. I cry out to you, violence. One preacher has said this particular word is used throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Habakkuk, it appears six times. There are only two books in all the Old Testament that use the word more than Habakkuk does. And those are the prophets, or excuse me, Proverbs and Psalms, where you have Psalms of lament, many of you know, that are written for this very kind of thing. And so this is a major concern in the book of Habakkuk, this idea of violence. He's concerned with the violence that's running rampant in his society. The concept of violence in the books of the prophets in your Bible often refers to physical abuse, but it includes more than that. It speaks of anything that takes advantage of the weak. It's a word that speaks of humanity's disregard of others. In these opening verses, Habakkuk addresses six problems of corruption in Judah. An overarching issue is this violence that characterizes his society. But then there are these six problems of corruption in verse number three. Six of them, and they are in three pairs. In verse three, he mentions injustice and wrongdoing. They're two sides of the same coin. The injustice of the perpetrator and the wrong suffered are two parts of the same human problem. So why doesn't God intervene? He tolerates it. That's a word saying he stands by and is watching. And the third and fourth problems are also a pair. Destruction and violence. They wreak havoc on communities, life-supporting infrastructures and relationships. The last pair of problems, strife and conflict, are legal terms in Hebrew. And Habakkuk says they abound, indicating that there are many lawsuits and legal quarrels in the courts of Judah. Colin Smith says this. So as he reads the morning paper, Habakkuk reads, say, the Jerusalem Gazette. He can't get through the paper without reading about a shooting, an act of violence, or some other type of destruction. And he says this should not be happening in the city of God, the city that I love. And it doesn't matter where he looks, whether it be in business or in government or between neighbors or even in the temple, he keeps seeing strife and conflict. You would think that at least in Jerusalem there would be a sense of community and some decency about the common good. But instead, he finds that although that was once the case, 
It's quickly disappearing and being replaced with an attitude of strife. And he's living in an increasingly litigious society. Everybody is suing everybody. He can turn on the TV at just about any time of day and he can find a judge show on. So he can find an entertaining, smack-talking Judge Judith or Judge Mordecai Mathis or Judge Joe Brownstein or ten others. And raising this question, indeed, he is making a claim, even an accusation. He's saying in verse 2, Lord, we're calling out for help, but you do not listen, you do not hear. Now, I've said in the outline that he listens. But in Habakkuk's case, he's saying, you're not listening in the sense that I mean it, and not in the sense that most often the Old Testament means it. Because that word, hear or listen, in the Old Testament is usually in context where an active response is called for. When we say, hear me, we mean respond to what I'm saying. And this word is used in context where if there's no response, righteousness then is called into question. Since Habakkuk is a believer, he knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this is the complaint of a believer. It's a believing protest. I know you're good, so why are you not doing anything about this? You're acting or failing to act inconsistent, God, with your character. Why are you indifferent? You do not hear. What Habakkuk is saying is simply this. God, do something. Do something. This is certainly the prayer of all the righteous in the face of the ubiquitous injustice that we see around us. So God listens to what we say. That is, he hears what we say. But as in Habakkuk's time, he doesn't necessarily act when and how we want him to. Giving rise then to the desire, Lord, do something. He hears, he listens. Not only to our complaints, but I say in the outline, to our reasoning. In verse 4, Habakkuk describes the consequences of God's delay in judgment. Verse 4, therefore, because, Lord, you're not doing anything about this, therefore, here's what happens. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So the courts are jammed with cases. And when all is said and done, justice does not prevail. Verse 4. And part of the reason is it says the wicked him in the righteous so justice is perverted. More and more is being decided on the basis of money and power rather than truth and justice. So the whole system seems to be coming apart at the seams. Boy, I'm glad we don't live in a society like that. Do you all see, friends, that the Bible is as relevant today as the moment every book in it was first written? And what made all of this so painful to Habakkuk is he looked around him and he saw what was happening in the country that he, that he loved is that these things were happening among the people of God. God had called this nation to be a light among other nations, and yet they're falling apart in the very city of God. 
His question to God is, what are you going to do about it? What will you do about the sins of your people? The Apostle Peter said in your New Testament, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Can you relate to all of this? Looking around you, seeing what's happening in the world, oh Lord, come quickly. Oh Lord, do something. This is contrary to the way it should be. And then looking within the household of God, Looking at the church scene? I mean, we haven't lost the Bible. You know, we've got printing presses now. We've got plenty of Bibles around. But did you know there are churches all over this country you can go into a church week after week and you don't crack open a Bible? The Bible's there, but the Word of God is not taught and is not heard. The morality of our, our country and of our nation has declined precipitously. We're now 46 years since Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in our country. We've been praying about this. So why in over 46 years has the scourge not been removed? We've been praying for a spiritual awakening in our country, but we've not seen an outpouring of the Spirit of God that appreciably changes the crime rate or rids our schools of drugs and violence. How can you tolerate evil, Lord? How can what we see on TV news every night keep happening? How are we to understand what's going on in our day? And that's the question of Habakkuk, and it's one that we often ask, and one that believers have asked in every age. Why is our world as it is? God tells us what we need to know. Listens to what we have to say, but notice lastly. God acts on our behalf. But please notice this. He acts on our behalf in his time. Friends, our world and our culture are in crisis. Maybe, and I frankly hope it is the case, that you find yourself crying out, How long, O Lord? Not just because of personal and world culture and world issues, but because of personal pain and personal tragedy, personal crisis. And because of all of that taken together, we should cry out indeed, oh Lord, how long? But please understand that the message of Habakkuk is a message for every one of us here. The days were dark in Jehoiakim's reign and the days may be dark today, for you in your personal life, and in some ways for all of us, given the condition of our society. But to us all, Habakkuk penned, actually, believe it or not, a message of encouragement. Begins with the situation, and the reality as it is, and the darkness as it is. As we get to the end of the book, we will move from fear to faith, and thus the title of the series. When we're faced with difficulties, we found, find that doubts can run rampant. And yet we find, as one has said, that those doubts can be turned into devotion. Confusion turned into confidence, if we understand the message of Habakkuk. Worry transformed into worship. Fear into faith. Terror becomes trust. Our anguish melts away into adoration. But why? 
It's because we understand that we answer the question why with the truth about this, friends, who is in control. Courage is found for every crisis only when we understand that our glorious sovereign God is on his throne despite everything we see and observe. And that's why the title of today's message is important. You see at the top of the outline? You should read that not just in time. You should read that just in time. That is, God will do justice. God is just. But this justice will happen in his time. And so your take-home truth is this. Despite how things look to us, God's plan is right on schedule. And we're going to see that through the book of Habakkuk. Now, we're going to bow and pray in just a bit. Just a moment. But in Habakkuk's day, there were all of this national upheaval, political crises. We've got that our share of that. Undoubtedly, in our lifetimes, we'll have more of that. But then there's also the personal crisis of your own life. What's going on in your life that you know is not the way it's supposed to be? There are people around you who don't behave the way they're supposed to behave. It's having effect upon you. And you're crying out, how long, O Lord? Please understand, friend, whether it be in your personal life, whether it be in the life of our nation or any other, at all times, God is, in fact, doing what Scripture says. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And God has purpose in the moment, in the bad thing, in the difficulty. I encourage you to stay for our next hour, 11 o'clock, actually 11.15 in this room. Because we're going to begin the series from self-help to God's help, which is about that very thing, what God is doing in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the difficulty of your situation. But you'll only do that if you believe in this God who is on the throne. And you'll only truly believe in this God who is on the throne if you have a relationship with him that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we pray in just a moment, I invite you to receive Christ as Savior. To realize that you are a sinner. To recognize that Christ has died for your sin. To repent of your sin. And to receive Jesus Christ into your life. Now, how do you do that? We're going to bow we're going to pray. Those of you that know Christ with believing hearts, cry out, how long, O Lord? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, help us to experience all that you have for us in the midst of the difficulty. We know that you're at work and we believe that. So our protest is a believing one. And then for those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can begin a relationship with him in this sacred moment. By saying to him, I understand that I'm a sinner, that I contribute to the way things are, and it's not the way things are supposed to be, and that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came and did what I couldn't do for myself. He lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I deserve. I ask you to forgive me. You say in your own words, from your heart to God, that, Lord, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. 
Take me, I give you my life. And he promises to save you, to rescue you. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for hearing our prayer and answering our prayer. To focus our minds and open our hearts. We thank you for the message of your prophet. That it's inscribed for us and preserved for us these millennia later. So that it can instruct us because our day is very similar. People have not changed. Societies have not changed. In terms of their sin, in terms of their difficulties, their tensions. God, you have not changed. And so we come to you in the midst of the same kinds of difficulties that Habakkuk and all the other prophets experienced. And we lift our eyes to you because you are the answer. It's not a political answer. It is not who wins the next election. It is our relationship with you and whether or not we live for you. So Lord, help us as your people to indeed do that. In the midst of the difficulty, help us to remember that joy comes in the morning. Help us to be lights in darkness as we live with joy because we have an abiding relationship with you. And I ask you, Lord, in your grace, in your mercy, to reach down right now in this sacred moment and touch the hearts of some who came into this room without a relationship with you. And they take on the world in their own way. And thereby they continue to sin. Rather than walking with you and obeying you, and in light of what you have to say about them and about the world around them and your purpose for them, all of this are various ways for us to sin and set up idols instead of the true and living God. Your word just calls it sin. So Lord, in your mercy, move on the hearts of some to confess sin and come to you. And you promise them to save, to rescue, and to deliver, and to br- and to begin your reclamation project in their lives. As a result of all of that, may we collectively be a people who are indeed that light in darkness and bring praise and honor to you in Trenton and beyond. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.